0: Welcome to the Rock's Back Pages podcast. My name's Barney Hoskins, and I'm sat here as ever with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And with Jasper
1: Mearson Bowie. Hello, Barney. (laughs) Steady on, Jasper. Good morning, gentlemen.
0: (laughs) Today's episode is a special tribute to the late Charlie Gillett, who died 10 years ago this month, and whose groundbreaking history, The Sound of the City, was published almost exactly 50 years ago not much of an exaggeration to say that Rock's Back Pages probably wouldn't exist without that book, which Absolutely. was the, the first attempt to chronicle what Charlie called the rise of rock and roll and the first book really to give historical weight to particularly American pop music that had never been taken very seriously so, up I, to I, that I, point.
1: I, I think that's right. Um, my brother gave me my copy in 1972 when I was 14 and it was a revelation. It taught me about all kinds of things I had no idea about particularly the nature of the independent American music business and how black music was essentially a creation of of the independent labels and... It's, it's it's fabulous. I believe he started as, as a thesis, is that correct? Yeah, I was just going to say, what a good big brother. That's fantastic. <laughs> I had a big he brother.
2: He's been down all the way <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, That's true, yeah. I'm very glad that we get to record this episode then, because we originally weren't slated to record at all this week. So no, it's a good thing that we I, are recording. I think we so finished last week's episode by,
0: by saying you were going to be mithering in Italy, but You're clearly Sam, not <laughs> mithering in Italy. <laughs> Hello, everyone. As opposed to mithering in Hammersmith,
1: still yes. mithering in Hammersmith in as usual. Gl- in Group isolation and Hammersmith. <laughs> I know, yes.
0: We're, we're sort of, well, not exactly self-isolated. We're sort of trio isolated uh, right. in the cupboard. Probably yes. never be allowed out of
2: there. <laughs> This is episode 66, so just add one more six and we'll be in hell. So well, quite, and Tomorrow's Friday the 13th. Tomorrow's so. Friday the 13th, so...
0: <laughs> Shall we get back on track with Charlie yes. Gillett? Right. OK. <laughs> we, we veer off into the sort of satanic realms. <laughs> Yeah, so you talked about the thesis. So yep. one of the things we're featuring free on the homepage is this great audio interview with Charlie from 1999 that Bill Brewster did. Mm-hmm. And Charlie pretty much tells his story. Yes. And it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. I mean, if you if you care anything about Charlie Gillett or if you've read The Sound of the City, I learned a lot listening to this again. Yeah. And so the story, I mean, he, this is an amazing story. I mean, he grew up in... Very, very humble beginnings in the northeast of England. I mean, literally in a kind of hamlet with no running water or electricity or anything. Wow. Very impoverished background, and yet went to Cambridge. Yeah. I think he studied economics of all things. (laughs) Might have helped him with his record company. But so he tells a story about how he ended up going to Columbia University on a post grad scheme. And essentially writing a thesis about the the evolution of American popular music and that then did not in a seamless Mm -hmm. way but it did morph into this extraordinary book, The Sound of the City which was published in 1970 and he talks about that and in fact we're going to feature a clip now of Charlie talking about The Sound of the City So
3: I came back to England then resolved to try and turn this thing into a book wrote off over the next year or so to Literally fifteen different publishers, all of whom just said this kind of approach would be okay for jazz, but nobody wants to read a serious study of popular music. It's, it's an oxymoron. But I was still swagging away. Meanwhile I got myself a column in record mirror. And Rolling Stone, which I when it first came out, I thought, oh my god, there's a whole bunch of people and that is me. i oh, wonder wonderful. I really felt the kind of brotherly empathy empathy for Rolling Stone when it yeah. And um And then there was a rumor that British Rolling Stone was going to be launched with Mick Jagger involved in some way, and I managed to organize an an, an interview, a meeting with him, because he was deciding who was going to be the editor. Who Mick Jagger was, or Jamman? Mick Mick, Mick Jagger in England was going to be the one who decided who the editor was, because he was helping to finance the England end of Rolling Stone. So I came to the meeting, sat around. After about an hour of waiting, he, he came in. Gave me the most cursory of glances, Spoke to whoever else was in the office and walked out together. And that was my interview. I was so angry. So that kind of gave me a whole impetus again. I'll show these fuckers.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that sums up Charlie, you know, not impressed by Mick Jagger. No. That's this, you know, Joe's absolutely his own man. He had such integrity. He was never bedazzled by fame or anything.
1: I, I, was, I mean, you knew him quite well, didn't you, Barney? I... I'm... Knew him a bit. I've met him quite a few times. And he was always absolutely charming. Yeah. But... If you said something he disagreed with, he would let you know. Oh I, yes. I mean, I wouldn't say it as much as like not suffering fools gladly, but he had a fairly low toleration for fools. Shall we put it that way? You know? Yes, never did it in a
0: sort of shaming no. way. But I mean, in fact, we're also featuring all the tributes that we pulled in ten years ago when Charlie died from a widespread of They're rocks really back pages lovely ages. tributes. Actually, mm. They really yeah, are, yeah. And, and and some of them really made me chuckle. There's there's, there's one that. Touches on precisely this point, Cheryl Garrett, who yeah. was then the editor of the Face. I think maybe when she was at City Limits, right. If she ever wrote anything and uh, made any kind of mistake, mm. she'd get an email from Charlie, <laughs> and, and, and I got emails from Charlie as well. You know, but it was never it was never meant to make you no. feel
1: small. It's just he, he he felt compelled yeah. to kind of correct uh, errors. He also had that pretty marvellous on radio london bbc radio london for a long time he had a show on the honky
0: tonk show um
1: our friend and colleague rocks back pages mm. martin Collier used to mm. actually work for charlie on that he used to answer the phones and things like that absolutely and it was via that show that i got my copy of bobby charles's well for right. example and we're going to get on to johnny Adam later yes but, but promised land was this this tune that he Play over and over again. And it was a terrific show. I think he lost me latterly is when he did this big left turn into what one dubiously calls world music. But he certainly became particularly obsessed with African music and so on and so forth. Slightly lost me at that point. Not because I disliked the music, but it wasn't my music. It didn't speak to me in a particular way. But yeah, you know, it was a great show that he had there.
0: He did become a real champion of quote-unquote world music. <laughs> and one of the three pieces, so in addition to pieces about Charlie, the three mm. pieces by Charlie, he's been on Rocksback Pages mm. from the year dot. Yes. And we've been incredibly grateful for that such an important figure. There's this piece he wrote relatively late in his writing career about the genesis of the term world music. (laughs) Um, And it's worth just briefly quoting. He said, In 1987, the owners of several British independent record labels convened a series of meetings in an Islington pub to discuss ways to get their records into shops. And then a little lady says, we settled uneasily on <laughs> world music, <laughs> overriding the reservations of those who felt demeaned artists to lump African band leaders together with Pakistani devotional singers. So he admits yeah, I mean, it was, it's not ideal. Yeah. But, I mean, he, was, he became such a champion of um, pat- well, particularly African music, I would say, but not exclusively. Sure. He almost stopped listening to sort of Anglo-American uh, yeah pop music and roots musics. And in fact, <laughs> I have to read this as well because... I got this email from Charlie after we assembled a list of the best albums of the noughties. I got this email. This must have been in the last year of his life. What an embarrassing, disgracefully white and inbred list this is. (laughs) Reminds me of the NME top 100 albums back in 1972 when only two black albums made the list. It's not actually true. And I think he's talking about 75. Have we really not moved on even by an inch to embrace the rest of the world?
2: He was very I, can't, I can't say I entirely disagree with him, actually. No, he's no. Got, he's certainly got a point there. He um,
1: he has got a point. I and can't even remember what albums made that list in the first place. No, not so,
0: can I. It's, no. it's, a, it's a long time ago. No, don't go and look. Ago. Nobody go look. But, I mean... Um, I've,
2: just, I have seen the
0: Let's so. just roll the tape backwards slightly in terms of, you know, before Charlie got into, you know, mm. quote-unquote world music, what an eye-opener The Sound of the City was. I yes. mean, I I... It just... It was like the sort of Bible of the American music business, how these particular styles and genres of music Mm -hmm. had evolved from the 40s through to the the end of the 60s. But also incredible detail about record labels and A&R men and producers and arrangers and session men. I mean, this was like, who knew? I mean, and even Grill Marcus, when he wrote his tribute, sent his tribute along about China. He said, I mean, it made me feel so ignorant.
1: Right, right. I mean, you know, I was 14 when I read it, and this was a completely new world yeah. to me. You know, I had absolutely no idea about any of this stuff. It was possibly one of the, my gateway drugs into black music. Yeah. I mean, I'd always liked black music, but suddenly this sort of world opened up, and stuff that I'd previously dismissed a bit, in that like snobbish British blues sort of way, you know, horn sections, that... That's cheese, you yeah. know. Suddenly, all of that sort of started evaporating. Yes. So, it, yeah, it was a really important book for me.
0: Yeah, and I think so many people read it. It, it and, and along with his honky tonk show, I mean, yeah, he was so influential, yeah, yeah. but in such a self-effacing way. Someone used the word self-effacing. He was the opposite yeah. of
1: an egomaniac. I, I mean, you know, he set up. Oval Records, yeah. which is also a publishing company and so on and so forth. He had bears some responsibility for the emergence of Dire Straits as a popular Yes, actor.
0: though he didn't profit from them becoming one of the biggest selling acts I'm, of the 80s.
1: I'm going to do now, I'm actually going to take something from one of the articles which is going yeah. up into, into the library this week, yeah. which I was going to talk about later, but I'll talk yes. about it now. It's Paul Sexton writing about Paul Hardcastle, who had the big hit with 19. Or, no, 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 back no, back no, 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 19. 19. Indeed. To give it its full, title. Uh, and idea. the first couple of paragraphs has so stepped back with me to November of 1982 and on a yellowing page in the Sol scrapbook, a letter yours truly from record business good guy, Charlie Gillett, head of Oval Records. Dear Paul, I wanted you would be interested to talk to Paul and Derek from First Light, whose AM is doing great work on the dance floors and airwaves and is selling too. One year before that and two and a half years afterwards, one of those men mentioned in that, that missive was making class dancing music for those who knew and hoping writers would fit him into their schedules. Then along came 19 and suddenly he was fitting them into his. Yeah. So Charlie Gillett, one of the good guys, of the <laughs> record business good guy. Yes. Paul Coulson, that Paul yeah. you that. Know, was responsible for this extraordinary sort of electro... Proto hip hop, yeah. sort of, you know, it's bizarre. Isn't yeah, it? yeah.
0: I Should we go back to the beginning of the Oval story? Because I think the second sure. audio clip features Charlie talking about Oval and how that label was formed.
3: And a friend of mine said, "If you weren't doing these things, which seemed to me I was doing quite enough for one person, what, what else would you do?" And I said, "Well, the only th- other thing there was to do would be to run a record label. So why do we do that?" Then? So in the middle of all that, we, we 1972, we went down to. Um, Louisiana in search of material which for an album which, which eventually came out as another Saturday night I don't know if you've heard of that but it was Cajun and Louisiana pop music yeah, which we eventually got out in I so we went we, uh, we went to Louisiana looked for the material found a company which licensed us, stuff to us on good terms came back to England and uh, couldn't find anybody remotely interested in releasing it but in the meantime some a couple of the listeners to my show had said you must go and see this band called them and the High Roads I went to see them i thought they were really really funny and good and just every, every all the kind of ba- barrier breaking that i was interested in these guys did you know they, they would sing 20 tiny fingers the old alma kogan to and then yeah. going to something like Albert isla's really hardcore modern jazz yeah just without blinking an eye uh, and this was ian Dury's first yeah. band so i went to see them came back on the radio said how good they were went again and uh, the third or fourth time i'm standing there those days a band would do a set come off the stage, and then go back on again and do the second set. And in the interval, this bloke came up to me and said, boy, you keep saying how good we are on the radio, why don't you fucking manage us? (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, let's, we must assume that was Ian Dury himself <laughs> So I mean that's another sort of feather in Charlie's yep. cap Not that he would ever have been cut out for management I don't think But but, but he was the de facto manager of Ian Dury's yep. first band for about a year Which um, must have been
1: pretty hard work Because they were an odd bunch of blokes there That killed them the high roads to put it mildly
4: <laughs> Absolutely um. <laughs> you know,
2: Yeah but so, so the, sorry,
1: another Saturday night was
2: sort of the birth of Swamp Pop as a phenomenon in Britain, is that fair to say? That he kind of brought Swamp Pop to Britain?
0: In a way. So, what you learn from listening to the audio interview, but also this piece of are that he wrote for NME in late 1974, he describes how he went with his partner in Oval, Gordon, to Louisiana. Basically, they were trying to find something to release on this Oval label that that they'd started. And what I thought was fascinating was finding out that they went to New Orleans initially, couldn't really find anything, but he says, One night in a bar on Canal Street, I nearly tore the green gauze in the pool table when a version of Promised Land came on the jukebox, featuring an accordion break where Chuck Berry, author of the song, had always played guitar. And it just, it blew his mind and... Long story short, they got in touch yep. with Floyd Swallow of Gin <laughs> Records, based out in about well a couple of hundred miles from New Orleans, and they went out well, to meet Floyd.
1: Well, in Lafayette.
0: Uh, Villa Platte, uh-huh. Villa Platte, or V Platte, mm. if, you, if you were speaking French. But essentially, they did a deal with Floyd, and they put out this amazing compilation, which I still have my original copy of, mm-hmm. Another Saturday Night, which was all stuff that had been recorded there by Floyd Swallow, including Promised Land. Mm. To say that that was the birth of Swamp Pop, I mean, I think Swamp Pop probably... Existed as a term before that, but this album—I'm
2: I'm just saying—to yeah, British audiences, for British it was my audiences, uh, it it just—but
0: that's absolutely right. Yeah. I think it. I think it was, and I mean, I think, God, I think. I have to say, I think Promised Land, uh, Johnny Allen's version of Promised Land, is probably one of the, like, my favourite yeah, records ever. It's I mean, absolutely
2: fantastic. It's such a sort of yeah. We were listening to it yesterday, and it's
0: beautiful. It's just fabulous, isn't it? And the weird thing is, it was it had been recorded in 1971, mm-hmm. so it didn't come out on that compilation till 74, and then and then it had this. New traction in 1978 yep. when Stiff that's, put it out as a single, and right. it almost became a hit. They brought Johnny over, yeah. which is what, when which the audio interview's done. We'll talk about that in a moment. Yeah, we'll absolutely. hear a little bit of Johnny talking. But I mean, I think Promise Land is. I mean, it was it was a huge record for for so many people. Yeah, uh, it's still one of the greatest like, rock and roll songs ever. but it was on the B-side awesome? of, <laughs> of a cover of a mole Haggard song. Yeah. And it was only just, you know, Charlie just hearing it in this bar on Canal Street sure. that turned it into this absolute classic yeah. and resulted in Johnny, who was still essentially like a teacher. Yeah. like, was it... <laughs> Anita Ward or someone, that we, you know, who's like... Ring my bell, yes. Yeah, yes. she's like a teacher, that, you know. That's right, yeah. Um, and then suddenly Ring My Bell is number one. <laughs> just a little bit like, they're not quite like that, but
1: like, anyway. Because yeah. it wasn't a hit. It, when, it was, uh, when Charlie first no. released it on Oval in 74 as a single, it wasn't a hit. Then he re-released it about a year later and it still wasn't a hit. Then in 78, they released, Stiff released it in conjunction with Oval. Yeah. And it still wasn't a hit. Yeah. You know, it just incredibly frustrating. It didn't sonically fit what radio pop radio would play. I think that's a simple problem. Yeah. um, And one of the
0: most extraordinary things about it, of course, is, I mean, he mentions the accordion solo. Mm -hmm. And it is it is just that solo by Belton Richard. That's right. We, who is also one of the artists on Another Saturday Night is one of the greatest yeah. things about it, I think. I mean, it was, it was great to see your response to it, Just. I think I had
2: heard it before, but yeah. just sort of didn't necessarily take it in as anything other than yeah. a cover of that song. But, yeah. but actually listening to it properly, it's really yeah. got something. I think it's... And it's interesting because there's, there's another recording that he did of it that doesn't have anything like the same... That's right. Anything like the same magic, and there's just... Something
1: about that—it was bottled
0: lightning. It swings it? like clappers. It really
1: absolutely, you know, does. that's yeah. the thing. Exactly, Simpically, it absolutely swings like clappers. It's an interesting song. I mean, Chuck Berry's song has been covered by so many artists. It's not true, but this song has produced two great covers: yeah. the Johnny Allen one, and Elvis Presley's, mm. which is just an electric, with a James Burton guitar solo, which makes the hair stand up in the back of your neck. And yes, it's just great. It's a great late
3: album. Somebody help me get out of Louisiana. Just help me get.
4: All I think
0: is a sad thing, of course, is is Elvis' version somewhat put paid... Well, maybe. ..to Johnny's having any chance of success. But it's great that Elvis did it. Yeah. And, I mean, it is just... It's one of Chuck Berry's greatest songs. Yeah. I mean, almost tempted to just read a couple of lines from, from the <laughs> lyric because it's just pure kind of American yeah, poetry, yeah, yeah, yeah. isn't it? I love that line about, I was on that midnight flyer out of Birmingham, smoking into New Orleans. Absolutely. Smoking into New Orleans. It's just gorgeous, isn't yeah. it?
3: And I was on that midnight. Little-
1: I mean, we should, I mean, for a brief digression to Chuck Berry, but is there an ever more frustrating artist who had so little regard for his own art mm. when he was one of the great American songwriters? Yeah. You know, yeah. And yeah. yet he regarded the whole thing, the whole business, with utter contempt. Yeah. And it's just a huge disappointment. He turned out to be such an unpleasant man in semi-respect. Yeah. respects. Yeah, yeah, completely. <laughs> just briefly, before we actually
0: hear the speaking voice of Johnny e. Allen, I wanted just to, to note... This piece from 1970, Charlie mentioned in the first clip we heard that he'd written for Record Mirror. Charlie was one of 134... British music journalists who were flown to New York to see Brinsley Schwartz <laughs> at the Fillmore East on a bill that also included Van Morrison and Quicksilver Messenger yeah, Service. Yeah, yeah. So the Brinsleys were the first...
2: Germans. Talk
0: about... It was one of the great kind of 70s hypes, yes. wasn't it? And they only just got there in time because the plane had had problems and they'd had to touch down in Ireland before <laughs> flying off. So they landed... At JFK, and immediately had to go yes. in a in a bus or several taxis to the Fillmore East, or they would have missed the entire point of their being there. Yeah. But he's very—I <laughs> right. mean, he, he, his piece is very funny. It starts with something like "Great lights, bad voice, terrible organ, same old guitar." My note, scribbled in the dark to record the first impression. So he's just arrived, and that's the first thing he writes down. And then he writes. Nicholas Lowe (laughs) sings, plays guitar, wears a Superman shirt and has a trick of nodding his head to make his hair cover his face.
1: (laughs) I mean, this is a notorious... Jasper, obviously, interest to you in a way is a historical event. This is a notorious event, this this whole Mm. hype. Was it Fame Pushers? Was the management company? It was all all these kind of slightly dubious blokes. Brinsley Schwartz were almost destroyed by this. They they were just taken to pieces in the press. Yes. so they then retreated, you know, probably got it getting their heads together in the country or whatever it is that bands did in those days, and re-emerged as a, as a pub rock band a couple of years later. Yeah. And basically rebuilt their reputation from the ground up. That's right. And then eventually a chunk of them became Graham Parker's backing band, The Rumour. And then Nick Lowe, of course, went on to mm. quite some notable success. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's admirable the way that Brinsley Schwartz kind of survived th- this... Fiasco.
0: Completely. And it's worth noting that Charlie's radio show was at least indirectly responsible for, you mentioned Graham Parker. Yeah. So so I, I, he played, Charlie played his first demos. That, that sounds and like he played the like. first demos by Elvis Costello. Wow, wow. Like, you know, yeah. I mean, he had he had a hand yeah. in in so much success. He also put on those great shows on Clapham Common. That's right. Where I played football with Charlie. <laughs> so this is my last memories, really, of Charlie are sometime in the nought. You know, he ended up, I mean, he was nearly 60 years old and still playing football with people not just half his age, a quarter <laughs> of his age, running around with this motley group of Africans and Latin Americans. Right. He just was... Ex- what, what was his position? Defence. He, he never crossed the halfway line. He was like the... Who was the great AC Miller? Beresi. He was the Franco Beresi okay. of Captain Common. But he was really... He was still incredibly fit yeah, at yeah. the age of 60. Lovely. And, um, yeah, fabulous. I just, so he notes also in this Brinsley Schwartz piece, he says, met Robert Kriscow of The Village Voice, who told us he is the best rock writer in the state And Vince Aletti, a modest r b critic for Crawdaddy and other papers who digs Sly and Jerry Butler and writes well about them.
2: Good. Isn't that nice? So Chris Gower is just forever telling everyone that yeah, he's the, the best. The, the, self-annointed, the dean, self- self- self-anointed or
0: appointed dean of American rock critics.
2: Shall we tell us a
0: little just, bit just, about just, the Johnny Allen audio? Yeah,
1: I mean, this is coinciding with the 78 Stiff yeah. release and um, he, he's he's over here promoting it. Cliff White does the interview and he talks very much about the place where he comes from, and he's from Lafayette. He's a regional hitmaker. He said his first single, Lonely Days and Lonely Nights, actually had some traction nationally, but that was the end of that. He said he occasionally played as far away as Florida or as Texas, but essentially he was a local guy playing local clubs and he doesn't seem to mind that very much, No, actually. No, he's very, sort
2: of I, he's very open ha- about the fact that he's happy to at least be having regional success.
1: Absolutely. He's, he's also very interesting about that, whilst his music had Cajun elements, it wasn't pure Cajun music. Definitely not. And that he'd get booked into bars and then not booked again because he wasn't authentically Cajun enough. Mm-hmm. That, that, that we're talking about a white... Francophone community essentially, who are very, very cut off and quite inward looking and kind of isolated. We must listen to that clip now where he talks about precisely that, about you know what constitutes real Cajun music in his place in that South to
4: Louisiana, in the town of Tibideaux. South to Louisiana, There are, Uh ten or twelve nightclubs in the Lafayette area in Acadia that specialize in that I mean <laughs> just as such an example yeah. we played in this uh, nightclub called a Cajun Cajun club you know yeah. between Abbeville and Kaplan this is on a Friday night so the guy booked me for like uh five six months from that date on a Saturday night well the guy calls me back up about like, two weeks later and says Hey man, there is no way in the world you're coming out here on Saturday night. This says, why, he said. The people would run me out of here. He says they want authentic Cajun music on Saturday night, and says they don't want to even hear of anything else. Mm. And I mean, there there's a place uh, over oh, about a mile or so from my house called Webb's Neighborhood Lounge, it's a nightclub. I mean, it's not really a lounge; it's a nightclub. Yeah. It's strictly Cajun music. That's where you'll see these. Uh, people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, up in the 80s, you know, some of them walking there with a walking cane. <laughs> when they get at the door, they'll hang up the walking cane and boy, the music, that, the minute that, that music cracks up, they're up and at it. South <laughs> to Louisiana, to the town of Timoteau.
1: That's lovely. Um, I mean, it's interesting that Cliff White, who's a really kind of a basic soul specialist, he's slightly out of depth in terms of his mm. music. He doesn't really. and he, yeah, He's open about that. Yeah, and he, but he lumps uh, Zydeco, which is the black sort of version of yeah. the music, with Cajun music yeah. as the same thing, which they kind of are and they aren't. So they have similarities, a lot of the use of accordion and things like that in Zydeco, washboards and so on and so forth. Zydeco is clearly bluesier. Yeah, Clifton well, Chenier and exactly, others. Exactly, yeah. for, for, for very obvious reasons. That sort of leads to a conversation, a slightly rose-tinted view of race relations in Louisiana. That's the way I, I read it. You know, he, he kind of... Johnny claims that things are a lot better than they used to be. Well, in fact, history has proven that that's really not necessarily the case. I mean, they can be better and still be awful. Well, I think well, so. well, well, quite. He talks about... He's asked, you know, "Do can French people understand Cajun people speaking French?" He said, so, "Well, they can, but you know, it, it is it, it's very different. It is it's quite a, different. I it's think. Quite, it's quite a different language."
0: Is it worth just quickly explaining what Cajun music is and who the Cajun people? Yeah, were.
1: The C- Cajun, which is a comes from Arcadian, which were originally French who came from was basically driven out of Canada and. Went down the because coast. they
0: refused to count out of the British. That's, that's right. They were kicked out of Nova Scotia,
1: and they went to New to the region around New Orleans, where they were kind of welcomed. Because New Orleans itself was a French place originally. Before it was actually bought by the American government. Napoleon had to sell it.
2: That's indeed <laughs> because he had yeah. tried to. Mm. There's the Haitian Revolution had cost him so much money because he was such a fool about trying to you know, reimpose slavery on the Haitians. How and he then ran out of money and had to sell New Orleans. Yeah. To,
1: yeah. That's great. Thank you, Jasper. That's, yeah. that's a yeah. very, very useful history lesson. So so they, they settled. They settled not so much in New Orleans itself, though they did settle in New and Orleans. But in the bayous in, and the it, small towns it, it, around, it, it, around. Exactly. Them. They retained their language, as you say, becoming the sort of slightly pigeon version of French, uh, you know, over time. They did absorb a lot of the local black culture in many the respects. Mm. They brought with them accordions and things, which are essentially French instruments, or yeah. instruments. And in the and
0: in the strictly Cajun music, of course, there were fiddles yes, as well. Yes, and washboards, as you uh, say. Absolutely,
1: yeah. it's, it's a kind of it's dance music. First of all, it's I mean Saturday night it, music. a Le
0: bon temps roulet. Absolutely, Saturday night like music,
1: very up tempo, lots of accordion, lots of powerful rhythm and that is something that Johnny Allen took from it. You know, it, it, he wasn't a pure Cajun, um,
2: and he talks about how you know at high school he was sort of very much pure Cajun that's music, right. and then he sort of suddenly heard rock and roll yeah. and was like, "Oh, this." He is... saw
1: Elvis
0: on appropriately the Louisiana Hayride, oh, show, right? Yeah, and, and that that's going to turn a young man. To yeah, it. absolutely. He
1: played lap steel in a Cajun yeah, band. Exactly. Um, yeah. He talks about the Southern states versus the Northern states and the. You get this powerful sense to to him, and it's actually a rather lovely speaking voice. I really Peace. enjoyed listening to it. Mm. That he is a Louisiana native mm. and nationalist in a sense. I mean, he you know he he was pleased to be in England promoting this record, but it was so out of his experience. Yeah, you know this is a guy who normally wouldn't play further than twenty miles from his yeah. home, and yeah. suddenly he's in London promoting this record. So yeah, and he, and he talks about Promised Land itself and it being reissued and his excitement about that. I talk about stage act. We'll we'll play a clip at the end of the uh, the end of the podcast, but he's kind of very amusing about. You know, play in front of those kind of quite tough audiences in yeah. these and these bars out in the sticks, That's right, uh, yes. out in the boondocks. Yes, you know. he
0: talks about singing "Land of a Thousand Dances" yes. and inviting people to sing along, to sing along. <laughs> but then there's some guys sitting there, you, <laughs> you don't know, serious <laughs> Cajun guys, and maybe maybe I won't ask yeah, him. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's, great. it's interesting
2: as well that a lot of the Cajun singers who were trying to make it a little bit outside of that. Space yep. changed their names, or basically dropped the French parts of their names. Johnny Allen had a French surname. That's... And other people also kind of refigured their names in order to try and, you know, at least so that disc
1: jockeys could pronounce their names <laughs> on air. Yes. But basically. I'm, I'm, what's interesting is that their black equivalents to Zydeco artists had been discovered as part of the rediscovery of blues people by the Lomaxes and the likes and such who would go down to the South and find artists. So... We in this country were much more aware of the black artists, of the Clifton Cheneys, the Rock and Dupeses of this world, yeah. than we were a, a, of the white Cajun stuff. And that's what Charlie Gillop found. Interesting. Was, was as much as anything was the white stuff, you know, mm. which just a, had never left Louisiana in any sort of significant way. Yeah, um, completely. I mean, of course, we were aware of New Orleans music, Dr. John, Alan Toussaint, The Meters, what we talked about the other week, all of that sort of stuff. But this rural...
2: Yeah, and it's worth noting there is quite a big difference, actually. I mean, not just musically, but culturally and, yeah. you know, in terms of the cuisine, Cajun and Creole are two separate things yeah. in, in, in many respects. Well, yes. of course, because they're
1: geographically close to each other, they have shared elements, yeah. but they come from slightly yeah. different I mean, it's worth historically noting that even in the slave south before the Civil War, New Orleans was a remarkably integrated city and actually became less integrated after the Civil War. Yeah. That the failure of reconstruction had particular ramifications on on Louisiana and New Orleans in particular Mm, as a city. mm, mm, Anyway, mm, so it's mm. a very nice interview, mostly about what we've already described as one of the great rock and roll tunes. Absolutely. I'd just like to
0: finish, before we move on to library highlights, just, just this little... Among the other tributes that came in when Charlie died 10 years ago was from Dave Lewis, editor of the Led Zeppelin fanzine Tight But Loose. And it just, again, it's just, it's classic Charlie. You just didn't <laughs> mess with this guy. So Dave said he once inadvertently took on the might of Peter Grant. He wrote a piece in the NME about singles and Led Zeppelin's resistance to them, while at the same time singling out the fact that the Zeppelin were a force to be reckoned with. Grant misread this as criticism of his boys and took umbrage and wrote a complaining letter in the following week's NME. With typical candour, Charlie replied, perhaps Led Zeppelin would like to tell me what they'd like to have written about them. (laughs) (laughs) So that's Charlie Gillett, marking 10 years since we lost Charlie and 50 years since the brilliant Sound of the City was published. That's right. I think I'll have to read that. Oh, it's, it's 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 a great one. It really is. It's it's the Bible of kind of early rock and roll scholarship. Yeah. Well, tell us what's what, new in the library. What's new in the
1: library? We'll start off with kind of Peter Noon, the Herman of Herman's Hermits. Or Peter No-one. Peter no-one. <laughs> 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 this is an interview by Chris Welch, from Melody Maker in 65. And he's just... Comes over as an impossible tit. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and he, he, he comes up. And he's like to all the R and B fans. I'd like to say I think the Holmes Hermits are definitely the only true R and B group left.
0: Oh, that's if, how I've thought, always thought Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. it, it,
1: if they want an ensemble, all the protest, anti-cigarettes, and God in Henry VIII. I mean, the, the mind Delusions is boggling. And, so, uh, and I do it all without the age of pills or drugs, just coffee and coke. <laughs> It, oh, yeah, no no yeah. drugs there. It turns out... <laughs> I think he meant... That, that, that he basically... You know, P- but, Peter um, actually basically ended up living in America. And it turns out he became friends with Alex Chilton. Uh, Peter I, I, I know, it's absolutely... Uh, after actually, po- nothing would surprise me I about po- Alex I, Chilton. I posted that quote on Facebook as a quote of the day. And two or three people responded saying that actually he became friends not just with Alex Chilton, but some other really interesting people. I know, which is He's you know, gone up in my estimation. I, he's, he's, he's no longer no one. He's, got, <laughs> he's, he's someone. He's back to someone. someone. <laughs> of, it's a
0: double barrel name, piece of
1: some There's one. High Noon. Uh, <laughs> but it's, so anyway, it's it's, it's 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 fairly hilarious stuff. Great. Eden and KRLA beat, she's just running through the singles that have just come out or have recently been released. And it's interesting because this is from December sixty-six and she just picks on a couple of things. She says Jean Clark has gone from group birds to group Gene Clark, to solo singer himself. His first solo effort is a beautiful ballad entitled Echoes. A beautiful, thought-provoking lyric and lush string arrangement add up to a possible first hit total for Gene. Now, you're a big Gene Clark fan, aren't you? I mean, it's it's very nice to read at the time someone saying this is a really, really good record. Yeah, and it was
0: a great record. I mean, actually, it was sort of... Untypical of what Gene Clark did. It's quite a sort of lush, mm-hmm. what you might almost call baroque right. California pop yeah. thing with these arrangements. I think by Leon Russell. Oh, right. He right so right. there's, I think there's even an oboe in there, and the strings. <laughs> very, it's, you know, it's yeah. very much of its time. Was it huge? I don't think it was a huge no, hit. No. But um, I
1: mean, you know, this is him striking out yeah. as a, as, you know, we we've talked about him before in the podcast about how. He was a really important part of the early birds so that he defined as a writer and instructor. Oh, Their greatest songwriter. So, yeah. In my the early opinion. birds. Yeah, Get the worm? No. <laughs> Steady on, Jasper. She also writes, even writes, uh, written in about 10 minutes, recorded almost immediately, and now well on its way up the charts, This is the Buffalo Springfield's second release for what it's worth. You'll have to listen to this one for a while before you really feel it, but it's definitely worthy of the top 20 lists. As she says, written in about 10 minutes, this is written in response to the Sunset Strip riots, which had happened literally just only about a month before this this article Mm -hmm. comes out. Mm -hmm. So it's a very, very quick release Mm -hmm. about a specific event it's just in, it's in, historically yeah. interesting stuff. It was
0: Steven Stills responding to the threatened closure of this tiny little club mm-hmm. called Pandora's Box. Right. You know, they were, it, it wasn't like they were protesting about you know Important anything things. unimportant like. <laughs> Like persecution yeah, right of ethnic minorities or anything, <laughs> their little club was going to be closed yeah. and, and they all marched down the street. Yeah. and
1: The heavy handed early cops. This is kind of, it's this
0: sort of instant agitprop prop on the back of folk protest, uh, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, and Stills did literally mm-hmm. write it very quickly and I think it was recorded very quickly. Yep. Armas Erskine said, Go in the studio and yep. record it. And I mean, do you think it's a great record? I've always record. had reservations about it. I,
1: I, I, I kind of like it. It's so. Ironically, it's quite nice. There's some nice guitar well, parts. It's the example. opening line, something's happening here. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it's bullshit. It is kind of <laughs> it's bullshit. It's Steven Stills' bullshit. It could have been David Crosby bullshit. The, you know, yeah. the, the, sort of the, the size of the heads expanding all around. Yes. You know. But it is interesting, the KRLA Beat is very interesting in that they really covered those riots. There were about two or three nights of it. Yes. Um, and there are letters, pages full of it. They would then interview kids about their attitudes. It was kind of an interesting time. I think Neil Young was actually bundled into the
0: back of a of a police. Car I should hope so. Or van and <laughs> and and, and taking down yeah. the local Nick. But I always think that Neil Young's equivalent to for what it's worth, Ohio, mm. which was also like written in 10 minutes. Yeah, that's right. I, I think is, you know, infinitely more powerful <laughs> record.
1: About a slightly more important event. Absolutely, um, yeah. Probably has something to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> There's something happening here.
2: But what it is ain't exactly clear.
4: There's
1: a man with a gun over there. Moving on to 1973, Brian Ferry, our old friend here in the Rock's Back page. can't get enough of Brian Ferrari. Byron Ferrari, yes, Ferret's biryani. <laughs> Being interviewed by, actually, the marvellous Ray Fox Cummings, who's one of our writers, I'm really coming to enjoy uh, a hauling We Goofy's all enjoy his name, name for a start. Well, we do. He was very early, kind of, you know, pro sort of the... Mott Bowie sort of yeah. stuff, you know, and Lou Reed and people like that. But this is Brian Ferry. Uh, he says, Brian was once quoted as saying that with each album, he started with the cover and worked inwards. Was that going to be true of the third? The idea comes first and the cover then has to express the idea. You have to find the right chick for it. Oh, Brian. Oh, you know, chick the, the chick word. The it, chick word. It's, well, it's, it's and... interesting because I'm not sure if Eno's actually left the band when this interview takes place. It's, it's 73 it's, so
0: he might have
1: just, just left because ju- obviously he's not on stranded that's right but <clears throat> it might be yeah. in that transitional moment yeah
0: yeah, yeah.
1: moving on to enemy 1977 one of my favourite writers, Brian Case, interviewing Stan Getz. He says that, much to his surprise, Stan was really quite a nice guy to talk to. Stan Getz has a really bad reputation. Has a very bad reputation, I mean, yeah. Ronnie Scott's is joking about doing, doing his back in, bending over backwards for Stan Getz, you know. But, you know, Stan Getz is, is an articulate, you know, pretty interesting guy. He says, all music, all art forms must have a logic form and content. You can't let it all hang out. You've got to be selective. That's his anti-free jazz take, you know. Right, a bit reactionary. Well, you know, he he, he, he was reactionary. I I, I love his tone. I think he's got a a beautiful tone.
2: I think he also gets slightly unfairly sometimes. He's just seen as... The bossa nova yeah, yeah, guy, yeah, yeah. which I don't think is quite true. There's a really well, nice no, no, it's album that's no,
1: completely untrue. Yeah. I mean, bossa was actually a really quite small part of his, his, yeah. his yeah, of overall course. output.
2: And there's a really nice record that he did with Jerry Mulligan, which I think is actually they're both you know on yeah, great yeah. form. They both have lovely tone. It's sure. just a nice straight ahead kind yeah. of Do you know, jazz remember record. What,
0: what year that's from? I don't. Is it
1: the 60s or earlier? Uh, He's he's also. Maybe 59. Because he had this. He and Ben Webster probably have the two most unique sounds of all tenor players. And they're not a million miles from each other. He says, The older you get, you realize it's not the mouthpiece, it's you. That you're fucked up in your head. You want something that's not there. He used to go to the mouthpiece manufacturers and literally come instruct them how to carve his his mouthpieces. That's he, an interesting quote. He says, electricity takes the sound out of the saxophone, the human sound, the breath. You hear electricity. No, he, it's articulate he's, he's, stuff. An, he's an interesting yeah. guy. And I think Brian Case, expecting to be given a really hard time, actually had a really rather enjoyable chat, you know, chat with him. And, and Brian Case, who has, had previously been very critical, particularly the Bossa Nova stuff, which he thought was ridiculous, I think came away from this interview with a much more respect for Stan Getz than he was expecting
0: did get, to. Did Getz... Played quite a lot in London in that era. He he
1: certainly did did play Ronnie's. This this took place at uh, his his flat in London. He had a a flat in London. Interesting stuff. Mm. about electricity taking the sound out of the saxophone, a guy called Ken Kalett, who's actually think Max kind of co producer around this time, on the introduction of digital recording, interviewed by Jim Sullivan for the Boston Globe in 81. And this is the moment when everyone thought that digital recording was absolutely the future, that it was inherently the best way to record. And he says, basically, what you'll get from the time you put a microphone in front of an instrument until the person at home listens to it should be identical. Now, in this piece, Jim Sullivan is actually kind of quite interestingly critical of what he's heard in terms of pop music. He says, clearly, in with classical music, there's a case for digital recording, but he and other people he talks to uh, feel that when you start multitracking, which you don't with classical music, Mm -hmm. most classical music recorded straight to stereo, when you start multitracking with digital. Things don't sound quite right, and this is 1981. He's, he's saying this, which is pretty pretty advanced. It's, yeah. it's before compact discs, so in fact, yeah. we are talking about vinyl pressings of digital re- recordings. Rykodisc's Bop to Drop, which is, I think from the year before, year before that, was was the very it first. Seventy nine. Seventy nine was, 79. 79 was yeah. the very first pop record That's recorded. Right, they made a big deal about, they made a, so, didn't they? It's, it's, you know, on the liner notes said, this yeah. is recorded in Thailand. Well, there's a sticker, I think, on the cover. Yeah, There are a lot of yeah, digitally yeah. recorded stickers yeah. on Pressings yeah. from a Certain Time. Right. Ray Kood now completely dismisses that yes. record. He says he thinks it's a horrible sounding record. Yeah, he's very anti He, he, he really seen. is. And, I, I, you know, whilst now there is a huge revival in this country in particular, well, actually, no, not just in this country, in America very much too, of analogue recording techniques, even going back to using tape and so on and so mm. forth. I think, actually, digital recording has been cracked. I think that, that that over... It's taken a long time. I mean, we're talking about 30, 30 40, almost 40, about 40 years, 35 years. <laughs> but I don't listen to music recorded digitally and wince in a way that actually I did back in the 80s and in the 90s. Two things. I mean, first of all, CD reissues have got much better. Remastering for, for digital from analogue sources has become so much better than it used to be. Mm. But also, just the software that we're recording... Um, digital recording now is done in a computer, not on a tape machine. These were, like, 32-track digital tape machines. That they were oh, doing OK. The back then. Yeah, a bit different. Um, it's, it's very different. And also, the way in which people have ma- managed it, in computerized sense, emulate analogue equipment and so on and so forth. Uh, I think digital sounds... Sounds pretty good now, you know, but it's took a long time to get there. Mm.
2: You can definitely make it sound good, and I think you, know, you also computing power is just so much greater these yeah. days that, that you have a lot more headroom that you can create on a, uh, uh, on a digital recording uh, than uh, probably you could just technologically speaking previously. I think
1: that's right. I mean, you know, the, the digital domain has just evolved so much that, that inevitably things are going to get better from like the quality of digital reverbs to the actual mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. awesome. Mm-hmm. Sorry about that digression into some of the more (laughs) tedious aspects of record production. Geek speak. Geek speak. Musician 1983, the wonderful Carol Cooper, interviewing our very own Eddie Grant. Mm. Eddie Grant's a really interesting guy. I mean, he was a pioneer black musician in Britain in the end of the 60s with his band Equals. Then he set up his own label, did all kinds of things. It's been a fight for him, a struggle, but he did very well. and At this point, he's now... Living in Barbados, he's mm. got his own studio there and so on and so forth. He says, if anyone asks if there was ever a black man in the English music industry who tried and even overcame most of the obstacles, they can say yes. To me, just to be able to live and create can be the biggest slap in the face for a man who's against you. He's a, he's a tough guy, is yeah, sure. uh, you know, And I, I have a lot of time for him. I don't yeah. love his music, but I have a lot of time for him as an individual. Mm, yeah. I mean, he's, he's really interesting. Absolutely. To another talking about black guys as Roachford. He it's, it's Roachford. I was going to call it after my full name, Andrew Richard Sylvester, but those initials are too dodgy. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. It's an um, interview by Max Belton, number one in 89. It's, it's, it's very nice. I mean, I never loved Roachford, cuddly toy and things like that, but he was of this group of black British artists who really liked hard rock. You know, we never... I remember once I was asked to maybe possibly write some songs with Pauline Henry, who had been in a band called The Chimes, she wanted, at that point, to be a hard rock singer, to be a rock and roll singer. Right. Huh. It's never talked about, but that was there. And Roachford's past that, mm-hmm. you know. And, and we just never would never occur to us. But, would it? But Jasper
0: and I both really love Co- Love Cupply Toy. Cupply toy. Do? it's just a, a banger. It.
1: I'm
2: sorry, it's <laughs> so funny. It's, I, there's that great scene, which is how I think you introduced it to me from the film Alpha Papa. Alpha Papa with it's
0: one of Steve, Steve Co- Coogan's, Coogan's <laughs> greatest moments. He's at the wheel. So of his brilliant. sort of ghastly, you know, Alfa Romeo or Jaguar, whatever it is, with with a really creepy driving glove, yeah, a horrible. On. Leather <laughs> and he also. puts on cuddly toy and he sort of mimes yeah. to it, and and he's it's so brilliant that it's almost glorious. It's Fantastic. almost so funny. It's almost it's a magnificent yeah. thing yeah, to it's, watch. It's, it? It is it's absurd scene. and grotesque, but he does it so beautifully that it is like a homage <laughs> to this track. And yeah, I did see Roachford. Play at the marquee when Cuddly Toy was was a hit. And they didn't have much going on beyond that track. Right. But he's still back. He's actually back this week. Yes. With a, I think he's got a new album coming out soon. And there's the lead track off it is a duet with Beverly Knight. So. Andrew Richard Sylvester Roachford, uh, I think. Was it his full name? Yeah. is he's, he's, still, he's still going strong and probably still doing great versions of Cuddly Toy. <laughs> I, hope so. I hope so. I do love that hope record. And what I need
3: is a like you
1: Years later, it's the fabulous Stephen Wells interviewing Nikki Six and Mick Mars of Motley Crue. Motley M- Crue! Motley Crue! Motley Crue! Motley Crue! And they do come out with the usual bullshit. I mean, Mick Mars says, I mean, look at me. If you were a chick, would you think? of I was a fucking sexy, would you want to fuck me? I wouldn't. What? No. The, no, the, the no, no, no. And, and mm. Nikki Six says, never been interested in hey baby, let's do it all night long. More like let's get it over and, or, with an order a ham sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite endearing. But really. the one interesting thing is that they um, are they are appalled by Guns N' Roses' lead singer whose name entirely escapes. Axel, Axel Rose. Rose. Axel Rose. Coming out with W axle Rose, W Axel Rose. Rose, coming out with the, the homophobic stuff that he did. What's and, yes, and, uh, 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 and, and and six says, it sounds fucking weak. I know, but I ain't gonna start putting down black people who are homosexuals just to be shocking. It doesn't sound. not sound, sound weak. It sounds no. actually pretty ballsy. No, no, no quite. Last piece, 95, is Simon Reynolds interviews John Oswald for The Wire. Barney, you turn me on to his Grey Folded, which is about 100 versions of the Grateful Dead's Dark Star stretched and morphed and imposed on one another. This, this, mm. this, 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 this extraordinary recording, done with, be able, with the permission of the Grateful Dead. Yes, cool. I mean, um, Dark Star is one of my favourite. One of my favourite bands is the, li- the Dead Live in sort of sixty eight sixty nine, just I'm just sensation good at times. You know, they could be awful and they could be brilliant. But this is a really really interesting use of modern technology, mm. essentially sampling, to produce this. Now before it's it's a very interesting interview. Before Grey folded, he had done a thing called Plunderphonics, yeah. where he had taken a lot of different pop songs and sort of just pulled them apart and done all kinds of stuff using these techniques. he had then been hit with a kind of lawsuit from the various copyright holders. He'd released it as a non-profit CD. 700 had been sold and he had to get rid of... He had to destroy the rest and destroy the masters. Really? Apparently you can get it because those 700 got out and people then suddenly copied it. I like that. I'd love to hear it. Yeah. You know. yeah. But
0: he's a really interesting guy, John Oswald. You know I I seem to remember commissioning John Savage to review Grey Fault right. for Mojo when I was when I was the re- reviews editor. I didn't know much about John Oswald at all, but Savage expressed an interest. Yeah, yeah. And I do remember playing it a lot and finding it absolutely fascinating. Yeah. So what a interesting idea I, for a record. I mean, as you say, literally what dozens if not hundreds, hundreds. of versions of Dark Star
1: he went from, to, all, from all different He eras. went to the Dead Zone archive yeah. and just pulled out from right, right yeah. through. From, he plundered. He fr- plundered Fonneside. Fr- from like 68 right up to 91, 92. Yeah. Different live, live recordings. And There's one bit where he piles so many on top of them and then squeezes them so yes. the whole thing is like a single bang. Yeah, you know, but made up. Of yeah, all these lairs. Of yeah. Dark stuff. Amazing. You really yeah. got to listen to it, Jasper. Yeah, um, I will. I think That's, you would find it really, really interesting. interesting. It's I mean, really it's cosmic.
2: also the whole plunderphonics thing. There are still people doing that that sort of thing, yeah. not just mashing up two pop records, but really kind of taking elements from you know 10, Several. 15 mm. yeah. records and kind of creating this whole new thing with it. There yeah. are a few people out there doing that, and I think you know it's got a lot easier to do that with. A technologically speaking, yeah. but also the internet, you know, it's so impossible to shut anything down these That's days bright. that people can just go and do it yeah. and and actually people have started to realise that it's probably beneficial to a record to become popular in other ways rather than trying to, you know, sure claim copyright and say, Oh, this yeah. is you know, this isn't allowed or whatever. Right?
1: Um, you know, he says in this piece that he didn't get much feedback back from the dead but that's because garcia just died Now, too busy oh. sort of dealing with mm. garcia's death tom well, Con- yes
0: because it's 95 five, and,
1: uh, yeah. he died in 94. 95 five 95. yeah Constantin, tom Constantin, the keyboard player who's on the original dark star release got in touch saying how much he, he liked it but i like the fact that the dead gave him permission to do this yeah so, that's know, definitely I,
0: to their credit
1: very much so it's a it's an interesting piece Um yeah. i really recommend if you can is Find Grave and I think yeah. it's on Spotify. I think it, I think it's there. Have a listen. It's it's a very very interesting thing. Mm. That's my lot, Jasper. What have you got for us? What have I got? Just a couple of things.
2: First of which is Missy Elliott live in Birmingham. Excellent. Stephen Dalton goes to see Missy in October two thousand six, and it's a sort of mixed review. Mm-hmm. I think basically the show had really great elements because Missy Elliott is really great. Yeah. But also there was a lot of sort of tra around it and yeah. there wasn't you know there was sort of extended tina turner karaoke bits and it right. just sort of didn't really kind of come together for every sense jolting show-stopping anthem such as get your freak on there were two or three cheesy dance routines and banal generic audience boosting chants mm-hmm. admittedly the floor show was dynamic and energetic but no substitute for elliot's avant-garde beats and beaming charisma right and steven dalton also points out that it is remarkable that Someone like Missy Elliott, who is so has such a broad canvas of different musical ideas that she uses, mm-hmm. for her to be the biggest female rapper kind of of all time is is actually a really interesting yep. thing because she's done such a broad variety of different things. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, her career sort of hit a sort of peak around ninety nine two thousand. with that fair to say? Sort of went off the boil, and then she, but she has come back with interesting releases. Yeah. I'd say her albums always really patchy, but I th- I'd say mm. the same about a lot of current R and B artists. I mean, I think that let's say Lizzo's an exception, is that her last album is actually pretty much fabulous all yeah. the way all the way through. And in fact, has Missy Elliott on it. And yes. Missy Elliott. Yes. I mean, obviously that Missy Elliott also has also been a huge encouragement to someone yeah. like Lizzo. Absolutely. Um, I I like her enormously. Mm. I mean, I, I've always loved. I think reading she's a great character. Absolutely. There's something terribly immensely likable and tr- and lovely about her. Yeah. I wish I liked her stuff more. I mean, but get your free comments. It's it great. Fantastic. Record. I love the first
0: three albums. I mean, I thought they were incredibly funky yeah. and smart and funny. And she was just different. Yeah. She was very eccentric. She seems to have really taken a bit of a backseat, really, yeah, yeah, yeah. over the last yeah. few years. I think we're still waiting for a new album. She did come we? out it's with a fantastic new album.
1: single a year ago, about, about a year ago, right. which was really great. And there was a fan, great video with it. It was all on YouTube and so on and so forth. It is hard for all R&B artists or hip-hop artists to sustain careers. It's mm. just the nature of the beast. Yes. It, there's an enormous churn. Mm. You know, yeah. artists are lucky if they've got three years of a real productive it work. It is very much, what have you done for me lately? Exactly. What did you do for me last week? Well, exactly. You know, um, <laughs> She's also, I think, she got into the business of mentoring other people or producing other yeah. people. she Even though she uses outside producers on those first three albums, there are a number of outside producers. Well, Timberland, yeah, most Timberland. famously, yeah. Particularly, she is able to assert her personality, musical personality as well as vocal definitely, personality, definitely. everything she does. Oh,
2: God, yeah. So, We Love Missy is the... We do, yeah, Summary.
1: Hello! People sing around,
4: now people gather round, now people jump around. Get your freak on, 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 get your freak on.
2: Next up, Clean Bandit. Bit of a bit of a sort of <laughs> lateral move, but Clean Bandit live at Shepherd's Bush Empire here in London, of course, round the corner from here. Caroline Sullivan goes to see, and there are sort of electro dance but with classical flourishes they're sort of a string group they're a four piece yeah. from they met at cambridge university and it's they make worse and dance worse, records <laughs> yeah more <and> more. yeah, <laughs> yeah. good news
0: <laughs> is you don't have to hear them to hate them mark <laughs> no, it's
2: they make true. sort of dance records but with strings is the beginning and the end of what they do i mean caroline sullivan it seems to enjoy it it gets sort of three out of five stars. It's sort of like mixed kind of reviews. Mm-hmm. It's, a bit, it's a bit strange. The Fusioneering can go astray, Rihanna, a tale of getting jiggy while listening to her records, and UK Shanty evoke the hooked-on classics, classical disco era, and Mozart's House has a hoedownish madness not dissimilar to Switzerland's Eurovision entry a little bit random. <laughs> Moreover, this sold-out gig proves that a band can't choose their fans. Up in the balcony, the teenagers drawn by Rather B, played as a fierce double-dip encore with a cover of Robin S's house anthem, Show Me Love, are shunted by a crew of rugger types who look like continuing a party that started at Prince Harry's Pad. Oh. oh.
0: Yeah, well, the way you describe the music, it doesn't entirely surprise me. No. The track, rugger Buggers. Rugger Buggers. Rather, rather,
2: <laughs> rather B was a massive, massive hit right. and a record that... As a pop record, I actually quite like okay. But the rest of it is pretty sort of middle of the road. Really big act, big act, yeah. yeah, huge act. I mean, you know, the, the same kind of time as Disclosure and Rudimental were becoming a big thing, in that sort of new UK house right. scene. I but we know. like
0: Disclosure. We like Disclosure. We Although they, I mean, their first album was Cambridge. great,
2: and then their other albums have been, again, I'd, I've not been super interested by their stuff. So it's a sort of slightly They're anemic, anemic scene, well, I, yeah. I find. Mm. Anyway, although they did do a good record with Mary J. Blige. They did a record with her that was one of her better records, I think. So interesting. I suppose we
1: ought to listen to that at some stage.
2: No? Why bother? Okay.
0: (laughs) We're too old to listen.
2: Last of the things that I picked out was actually a piece that you added, Barney, which is Jack White, speaking of people who like analogue recording techniques. But I just picked it out because it's by Andy Gill in Mm. The Independent, and I think he was Mm. a great writer, and... The first line is, Who does Jack White think he is? Well, judging by the cover to Boarding House Reach, a smoothly airbrushed simulacrum of Keanu Reeves, which rather flatters both men in complimentary ways. <laughs> it's just a nice, nice little bit of writing and a funny sort of comparison to draw between Great. those two chaps. That's it from me.
0: Well, thank you so much. Thank you both. This has been the Rock's Back Pages podcast. And, Mark, you're going to talk us out with the second clip from johnny allen
1: yeah well this is, we, we talked about it earlier so i keep this quick it's about basically you know his stage act and how he re- works an audience and how he le- knows who to avoid working with um, <laughs> great the audience. Well, we'll hopefully
2: see you next week
1: Although yes. that's
2: all pending on.
1: Yes, I mean, we are still
0: here. We haven't been commanded to work from home, but we may all be self isolated. may be. This time next week. Mm-hmm. So stay tuned. If this is the last episode for a little while, we hope you've enjoyed it. We will hope to be back soon and we will see you then.
2: Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.
4: Lonely days, oh, lonely nights. Yeah. I get the audience involved. Yeah. I find that uh, this this has been a key thing, you know, as far as the, the reception that we get in playing these nightclubs. The people expect—I believe—they expect it of me now—to Right. To get them involved. In you know, like we'll do a song, and I'll walk off the bandstand, you know, off the stage, and and just get somebody to um, sing the song. I'll yeah. just hand them the mic, you know, I'll just shock the <laughs> heck out of you know. To, here, you know, we'll do something like. Um, you recall the song, Land of a Thousand Dance? Oh, good. Sure. No, 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 yeah. no, no, Now, You know, I'll just hand the mic to somebody okay, here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's saying it. saying, not me, no. <laughs> right. And all the other people around say, yeah, yeah, we want to hear him sing. Yeah. That kind of, you know, that kind of thing. And they really dig that. All right. But get the uh, Now, some places, some places I wouldn't dare walk off the stage and do that, you know. Oh, they're that tough. <laughs> you know, because I'll, I'll, I'll walk off and hand it, uh, I have to. I have to be selective, and and I've learned, you know, you, after doing it for so many years, you have to learn your audience, mm-hmm. and I, I have to kind of study the audience before I go into this routine. You've got to watch, you know, I've got to watch who I can do this to and who I can't.
3: Yeah, yeah, right.
4: You know, like if this guy sitting there looking at me like that, I don't dare do it. <laughs> yeah,
3: <right. laughs> So you've learned that by. Hard experience. Hopefully. Right,
2: yeah. That was Johnny Allen in conversation with Cliff White in 1978, concluding this week's Rocksback Pages podcast. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co hosted and produced by Jasper Muris, and Bowie. The Rocksback Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon podcast network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.
1: Smart. Cut that out. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Shall we start again?
4: <laughs> oh, the whole episode. The whole episode. <laughs> <laughs>